I'm not on, am I? There I am. All right. Well, this morning is uh, the first of a three-part series. We're going to have an uh, an installation interruption next week. So uh, we're going to start part one of this three-part series. And uh, Lord willing, we'll get to two and three following the installation service. And then um, we will, uh, again, Lord willing, find our way back into 2 Corinthians. But wanted to take the opportunity and with the weather being what it is, you guys heard my rant last week about weather people. Uh, so I'm going to move on from that. But the weather being what it is, I figured I'm not going to wait until it's clean to start this series on the direction uh, that the church will be moving in in 2020 plus. The reason why I say 2020 plus is I want to lay out a vision or a strategy, if you will, that is not conducive to just an annual calendar. It isn't just the type of thing that we can set to measure and accomplish and, and check our metrics and see if the numbers have hit and all those kinds of things that what we're going to talk about are things that will change the culture of a church that need to be a part of the church environment, the part of the church mission and then future strategy for years to come. And so this transition being a good opportunity to cover these things, what you're not going to hear are a lot of great compelling slogans. Uh, we're not going to be putting posters and t-shirts all over the place. There's time and place for some of those things. I'm guilty of engaging in some of them in the past. But that is not the kind of strategy and vision we're talking about. We're talking about what the, what the word of God says needs to be true of every single living, breathing church of Jesus Christ. And we want to anchor ourselves, refresh ourselves in those things, move forward in those things so that future strategies or objectives or some of the things that we as people sometimes do are grounded in something much more substantive than just a passing fancy or a grand scheme or idea. So this morning, we are quite cognizant that we have been a church in transition officially now for the better part of the last year. But the reality is that the church of Jesus Christ should always be in a state of flux. We should always be in a season of transition because once we start getting comfortable, once we start getting complacent, we have a tendency to think that we're just maintaining, we're holding still, and we never are. As a church is given its mission to, to give glory to Jesus Christ and to change the world around it, if we're not moving in that direction, we're not just holding still, we're shrinking backwards. And growth, of course, doesn't look like numbers all the time. It doesn't look like uh, new buildings and greater budgets and all those sorts of things. But there are indicators of health. And when a church is healthy, it is growing sometimes numerically, sometimes more inward, sometimes in maturity. And I believe that is the phase that the Lord has us in now. The last several years, we've done some really compelling things to, to reach out and to spread out. We've seen lots of new faces. There are a lot of people here that didn't even realize we were in transition because you're new. And so you didn't even know that was going on. That's been great. It's a new season at faith. But it also is time for us to take an inward look and see what are the things that we need to bolster? What are the things we need to get back to? Similar to what we saw in that music video. I hope that made sense. I came across that this week and I just said, it kind of says it all to a really good tune. So let's see if we can absorb that just a little bit. Because the word that you're going to hear me say over and over again, the word that you're going to hear on all of our platforms is gospel, gospel, gospel. 
And if you're like me, you grew up with an understanding of what that meant. And I, and I feel like I got a good understanding of what the elements of the gospel were. I memorized the Romans road. Some of you will know what I mean by that. In the book of Romans, there's Romans 3.23, Romans 10.13, all of these great passages that can lead somebody who is seeking Jesus Christ, can lead them to give their hearts over to the Lord, pray the prayer of salvation. We have the phrase that we've said over and over through the generations, the sinner's prayer. And these are compartmentalized, clean kind of uh, ways that we can engage uh, when we need to share our testimony or bring somebody across the threshold to Christ. The danger, though, becomes because we're people. We can compartmentalize, we can own, and we can predict, and we think that this is the way that these things need to go. I've confessed with you a couple of years ago, I had a, a class in Bible college. It was an evangelism class, and one of the the, the curriculum things that we used actually had it down to such a science that as you're talking with people about Jesus, at this point in time, you want to reach out and grab their hand because they're going to react. Or at this time, you're going to hold out your Bible. And there's all these tricks and gimmicks to the whole thing. If you package it right, people will respond. The ministry will grow. And we see this not just in some of those hokey lessons. We see it happening to churches all across the, the nation now. If we do the formula, it will show up with visible, tangible results. I hope to call us to something deeper and greater than that. So what are we talking about? Gospel, gospel, gospel. I understand what the gospel means in, for, in terms of presentation, but there's this refreshing new movement uh, sweeping uh, the church around the world to re-engage with what the message of the gospel is and how you and I, even as we are already in Christ, need a daily dose of the gospel. We need a daily reminder of how, how, how much we needed salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ, how much grace goes with us in every step we take, and that it informs how we relate to others around us to be transformed by the message that saved us. It didn't just get us into the kingdom, but it instructs us and leads us in how to live in the kingdom. We're talking about creating a culture in a church formed by good doctrine. The culture is something that we're going to be able to practice, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but it has to be a practice based on the truth of God's word. And so as we just launch some of these thoughts this morning, they're not going to be so revelational. You're like, never heard this before. You might even say, I thought that's what we always believed. And that would be good. But we're going to re-engage. We're going to redefine. We're going to dig deeper in application on how we talk about these things, how we live this out. So here's a simple statement for you. The first of three statements that we'll get over the next few weeks. And if, and if, if the statement doesn't stick because I've reworked them a million times to make them as simple as I can. But if the statement doesn't stick and you go home and say, I think he said something about we have to do gospel stuff. That's fine with me. Do not get hung up on the cleverness of a statement. I think he said we need to do more gospel. Yes, that's what he said all morning long. Here's our statement. That we will practice at this church, we will practice a relevant gospel. The gospel is our doctrine. So in order to get a handle on where we're going, we're going to do this statement in reverse. We're going to start where it matters most. Let's go to the word gospel and figure out what we're talking about. I came across a great definition by a book by David Platt. Platt wrote a, um, he's just a great preacher and a, and a great missions minded, uh, leader. And, um, 
I really appreciate his ministry. And in his book called Counterculture, if you're looking for a good read, in his book called Counterculture, he defines in the opening pages the gospel this way. It's not his own definition. He's just compiling the things he's seen in his time and studying the word of God. It's a fairly long one, so don't worry about memorizing it, but let's get a handle on how we're defining the gospel by way of David Platt's quote here. The good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and has sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that everyone who turns from their sin and themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. Like I said, it's fairly straightforward, right? Most of us in this room say, I I think I already believe this though, so where's the challenge? That's a good place to start. The elements that, that Platt is breaking down for us here is that there is good news, which is, which is the gospel. It stands for the good news. Then that the good news is that you and I needed a rescuer because of the greatness of our sin, because of the holiness of God. We needed Jesus to bridge that gap, to live a perfect, sinless life so that when he laid his life down, it meant something. It paid for something. And his perfection covered our sins. But it didn't just end in the tomb, that he rose again, conquering death and the, the impact and the effect and the punishment that our sin would have on us. And that that, res- that resurrection, that rescue that we receive, then moves us out so that we don't just hold on to it for ourselves, but to transform the world around us, to show the same grace, the same, same forgiveness, the same restoration that we've received. Paul told the Corinthian believers as he's forming the church in the first letter, and he's he's trying to remind them of of how we kept the message simple. He says here in in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. First importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Simply put. The, the, the genius that Paul is, the, the brilliant thinker, you've, you've, you ever want to see how his mind works, read the book of Romans and you can see how he can just lay out an argument in this really amazing form, says, I came to you to preach one message and that Christ was crucified for our sins and just stop there. When's the last time your mind was blown by the fact that he did that for you? When's the last time that that informed you to such an extent that you started to say, man, everything I have in life, I do not deserve. That I deserved, as we've already now seen and heard a couple of times this morning, that I deserved the fall. I deserved all the punishment coming my way. And instead, I have a Savior that died for my sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And it doesn't end there, that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures as well. Paul said, I came to preach that and that alone and to beat that into us over and over and over again. Why? Because we're so dumb, we need something simple? Not necessarily, because it doesn't need to get any more complicated than that. That there's enough power in that message that it would start to transform us, that it would start to change our our our, our conduct, our manner of life, or what the scriptures would say is our walk. So that's our brief 
and sort of overview definition of when we say gospel, 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 this is what we're touching on. And this is what we'll look to to uh, bear out as our future plays out uh, in front of us. Again, working in reverse, we come to the word relevant. You would know the definition of relevant, but here's the official one. Appropriate to the current time or period or circumstances. And it's of contemporary interest. So exactly what we expect it to be. It's what matters now. What applies to now? Is the gospel relevant? Is the gospel enough? We, we, are, we are living in a tumultuous time. And it seems as though that the problems are getting more and more complex. So it seems like the simplistic answers are becoming more and more passe. But are they? Is the gospel enough? Is it relevant enough that we could just say like Paul, that's what we sought to do is just preach Christ and him crucified and live in that. Is that enough? We have to ask ourselves these questions because we might say it. Yes, it is because we're in church. We're supposed to. It's our Sunday school answer. Okay. Every time I say Sunday school answer, I have to explain. Everybody knows what a Sunday school answer. Okay. Half of you do. So I'm going to say this lame joke for the other half. The Sunday school kids were in class and the teacher said, every, okay, kids, I need you to tell me what's the little gray fuzzy thing that runs along the telephone lines and jumps through the trees. And one kid spoke up and said, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus because we're in church, but it sounds like a squirrel. So the, see, I knew half of you didn't know that joke yet, or you're just being too kind. But the Sunday school answer is the one that we know is supposed to be right, but where there's this check in our spirit or we're not sure we've quite adopted it into our own being. And so if I say, is the gospel sufficient? We're all like, amen, it is. Is it showing up for us day to day? Is the gospel sufficient for us? In 2 Corinthians 3, we had covered a passage that Paul was again working with the Corinthian church. And he says, verses four through six, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. This is where we're getting to relevancy is this word sufficient. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us, again, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And we had said that that new covenant was that God would dwell in the hearts of his people. Not of the letter, which is the law, but of the spirit for the letter or the law kills, but the spirit gives life. Where does our sufficiency or where does our relevancy come from? It comes from the spirit who brings life. So our sufficiency is in the power of the spirit. Uh, someone's helped our, our church out already tremendously by writing a book called The Gospel Driven Church. His name is Jared Wilson. And in it, he makes one simple statement that churches need to recommit to the counter-cultural supernaturalism of biblical Christianity. And I have a tendency to agree with that. I, I see that we have become uh, uh, more intellectually advanced as a, as a movement. I think that our answers are, are apologetic in form. I think that we are promoting a, a gospel of reason, which it is. That, that, that following Christ makes a lot of sense, even though the world says it doesn't. But when you break down the intellectual components and you see all the answers that God has given us, if we just study them and find them, we get this kind of, it's hard to admit that we need it, but sometimes we go, oh, okay, I am doing the right thing. Oh, okay, Jesus is real. Okay, I was just starting to think that maybe he wasn't. So it makes sense for us intellectually, but we've gotten so good at the intellectual side of this that we have walked away from all of the profound supernatural things that have happened in the power of the gospel. 
so that the church would recommit to a counter-cultural supernaturalism. He makes one little statement, and I know this is going to be a little bit controversial, and we're going to have all kinds of doctrine things that are going to that have put guardrails on this for us, but I like this one sentence. I was reading this in my office in the quiet early morning hours, and I just did the one of those rare laugh-out-loud things. I went, <laughs> I was looking around like, I'm by myself. He goes through all of this stuff talking about we need to recoup supernatural prayer and supernatural scripture through a supernatural gospel. And he says, it's time to make church weird again. I was like, <laughs> I'm not saying that we have to get freaky weird. Please understand what I'm saying. But I do confess to you this morning that I have been in a pursuit my entire life of trying to grapple with the reality, the the, the reason of God. I want to know more things about him. I want to fill my head with all of that stuff to know that, that I've made so much sense of the gospel that I've forgotten that so much of it does not make sense. That so much of it is so mind-blowing, so much of it is so jaw-dropping that I have to go, okay, this is God's stuff. This is not me. I can't reduce him to what I can comprehend and understand. He does the things that I can't quite explain, and I've forgotten that in my life. And so I take this not so that we do the signs and wonders and not so that we can impress people, not so that we can reconnect with this. I just feel like Jesus is with me because he just did something cool in my life. It's none of that sort of thing. It's that when I engage in prayer, do I really believe that the one I'm talking to can do something about it? When I engage in prayer and I understand who he is and what he's able to move and do all those things, do I really speak to him as one that I need to fall in reverence and respect of and say, you are very, very powerful. I'm so thankful you're my friend and I can come near you, but you do things I can't comprehend and I'm asking you to do that now. What about in our relationships? What about in our workplace? What about with raising our kids and all these? Do we come to the Lord in, in such a great dependence that the only thing standing between me and something being done about it is what I believe in prayer that he's wanting to answer? I don't know. Maybe I come to the, the scriptures and I say, well, I'm starting to do my reading plan and I'm getting my chapters in and I'm memorizing my verses and the mechanics of this is starting to pick up and it's working well for me. But have I forgotten that there's life in these pages, that the answers to everything I'm struggling with are found here? Have I forgotten that? See, this is what makes the gospel supernatural. This is what makes a church move in a different kind of culture other than just getting our practices down and lined up perfectly clean so we can say we're doing good things. It means that we are trusting in somebody else's power to do what we really can't. This is what it means to be relevant. Is relevancy really up to us? It doesn't sound like it, does it? Relevancy isn't up to us being hip, isn't up for us being cool or any of those kinds of things. We're going to do some things in church that meet our culture. We're going to do some things in church that fit a certain style. We're going to use our own reason or creativity or ingenuity or something like that to do those things because we're people living in a people context. But once we start depending on those things as as the, the future of our church and the things that we rely on for growth and strength and prosperity and all those things, it's starting to shut the door already the relevancy is up to the lord paul says in romans 1 i'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to press the point even further and then we've got to move on to the next word 
2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, we gave a preview of where we're going in this book later on. And we said that perhaps the quintessential verses of the entire letter that, that the theme of the letter could be summed up to are going to prove to us that our power is going to come through our own failure. Paul says this, that he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. You see where gospel shows up? We have to start trusting. You mean I, I need to look like a failure? I didn't sign up for that. I came to church because they told me it was going to make me cooler. It was going to make me sharper. It was going to give me that edge to to get my uh, my life balance. We were teasing about this uh, word a little bit in my prayer group this morning about this uh, notion of life balance. And that's what church has become. It's almost like yoga guru sort of. It's just another element to add because I got a little of my spiritual stuff here. I got my work balance. I got my health. I got all this. And so that's what I was looking at church to be. Paul is saying, no, no, no. we have to strip all that away, willing to be weak little failures. Because who we're promoting is more important than our outward success. Verse 10, he says, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A church full of losers. Doesn't that that should be the slogan right there. We just came up with it on the fly. That's great. My wheels are spinning all I'm seeing it on the sign now. All of our business cards for the pastors. Come to the church of losers. That's what being relevant looks like. It's amazing to me when I sit and talk with people on either a one-on-one basis or whatever, and we're opening the scriptures, and I'm thinking to myself, they're really going through some stuff. I don't know. As long as I've been doing this, I still think, I don't know, are we going to find the answers here? And then the more we get in and the more patient we are with the Lord leading us down a path, the answers are there. That the gospel is relevant, more relevant than any other methods or practices that people are hunting for or hungry for out there. It is relevant. First word in our statement was practice. We said that we were going to practice a relevant gospel. Practice in its verb form, as you would know, is a performance. You perform an activity or you exercise a skill over and over and over again in order to improve on something or to not slip backwards. If you already have a proficiency, you don't want to see it get rusty, so you stay practicing. Practice turns some kind of cultural shift going on. When you see our sports teams now, you know we know everything about our professional athletes now more than we need to. And one of the things that we know is when, like in football season, when training camp's starting, you start to see certain personalities of the superstars, whether or not they're going to show up to training camp, whether or not they're going to hold out for bigger contracts, whether or not they're going to be absent talking to the media and everything. It starts to impact the culture of the team when you don't want to practice or what kind of practice you engage in starts to impact the culture of the team. And this is what we're talking about as a as a noun, we, we often say, like, uh, if you're in a legal profession or a medical profession, that you have a practice. And we say that's where people go to practice their profession. Imagine what we could say if we looked at the church. We go, yes, that's a church, but it's also a gospel practice. 
The, the people that go there are practitioners of the gospel. They go there to learn their skills, to engage in their meetings, to do their certain things, and then they leave, if we were to say in the medical profession, the aspect of we, we send them out healthier. We send them out checked over. We send them out with a diagnosis of what, how to, what they need to do next to make themselves right. Or in a legal profession, we, we send them out well represented with the confidence that someone's got their back, that someone's walking with them, that someone's going to see them through this crisis or this difficulty. If the, if the church was practicing the gospel, if we were a practice of the gospel, imagine what would change. Ray Ortland, in a little tiny book simply called The Gospel, has a great little mathematical formula here. So remember, we've talked about culture and we've talked about doctrine, culture being informed by doctrine, gospel practice. He says, your gospel doctrine minus a gospel culture. So picture what that would be. We know a lot about the Bible. We know what the gospel's teaching. We, we understand the truths that are being communicated there. We can spout off the Bible verses. Our theology is correct. We're nailing this, but we have no elements of grace or some other things that we're going to talk about here in a minute. If you take out the gospel culture, what you end up with is what the church has been accused of for decades and decades is hypocrisy. This is no uh, unfamiliar term to us. I think there's half truth to that and half misconception. Some of us truly do live hypocritical lives where we can say and sing what we want and do what we want on a Sunday morning, but it has no impact or, or daily change in our life. We're not really quite living what we say we believe. But also, I think the outsiders look in at the, the church of, to our, for our new slogan, our church of losers, and say, they're no better than me. They're a bunch of hypocrites. There's a difference, though, between those of us that are broken and know how much we need a savior, and we continue to bring our brokenness to him over and over and over again, and we don't look very churchy. Because that's who God lives with. That's who he saves. That's who he deals with. But anyway, a gospel doctrine minus a culture of practice is hypocrisy. Conversely, a gospel culture, which is all about grace, which is all about, man, I get it. I, I had rough times too, and so you're going to have all the rough times you want, and we're not holding you at any higher standard. We're not looking to the scriptures to challenge you on how you can grow and change and that kind of stuff. It's just, we're all just getting along here. We relate to one another, kind of a Christian hippie experience. If you have that gospel culture minus the truth of God's word, you end up with fragility. You just touch that thing and it shatters. The ministry, as we said earlier, is already starting to close its doors. So clearly we want a balance of both. We want a gospel culture that is informed by a gospel doctrine because that's where the power of Christ shows up. So very quickly in the few minutes that we have left, I know I said at the beginning that these aren't necessarily things that we can put in slogans and measure and all this sort of stuff. We'll know in six months if we're getting there or at the end of the year and all this kind of stuff. If it means more people start coming to faith, great, we want that. I don't want to turn people away. <laughs> I don't want to see you leave. I don't think there's more spirituality and shrinking. Well, now we're just getting to the people that are serious. It's like, then I'm out the door too, you know? Because, you know, I this whole thing, this grace thing is just as important to me as it is to any of you. 
So we want to be careful not to put any uh, um, human measurements on these things, but I think they're very helpful indicators. Again, Mr. Wilson from the Gospel Driven Church surmises these things, but he's adapted them from the great preacher Jonathan Edwards. Edwards did a work called Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And so with a little bit of more contemporary language, we get to read what Edwards thought would be important in the life of a gospel-centered church. First thing would be a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. Again, how do you measure that? That, that people are, are able to focus more on the centrality of who Jesus is, that we exalt him as supreme over everything. It's not something you can quite measure, but it starts showing up in certain ways. You know it when you see it. And that in all that we do, what we teach, what we say, what we sing, what we, what we study, what we pray about, that it's all pointing towards the fact that, uh, that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment for everything that we lack. That Jesus is the perfect fulfillment that everything that the Bible is calling us to do. When we, at, when we look at these metrics, when we look at these measurements, though, we have to be willing to ask some tough questions. The leaders need to be able to ask some, be asked some tough questions, and the congregation or the body of believers needs to be asked some tough questions. When it comes to a growing esteem for Jesus Christ, the leaders need to ask themselves, and everybody can ask themselves this, but in particular, the way that this filters out in practice when it's from the top down, in a sense, it changes things. Leaders need to ask himself, is Jesus the grace-centered focal point in my preaching or in our worship or in the things that we teach? Or is he an add-on? Is he like, oh, that's right, this was about Jesus. Oh, that's right, we have to get back to some of the things he did. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just had this passing thought, but when I get into the Gospels and I'm reminded who Jesus was, it's not a great sign. He's not just reserved for when we teach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's everywhere. The church needs to ask itself, is Jesus the most important reason why I'm here? Sure, there's lots of other aspects that a ministry can give us, a place to belong. You know, we, we like certain things stylistically about certain churches. We've made friends. We get to exercise some skills, talents, and gifts, and so it gives me a platform to do that. Those aren't inherently bad things. They can become so. But is Jesus the most important reason why I'm here? Let's be honest. If he is, we can overlook a lot of stuff. That, that our personal disappointments or I don't really like that song or that person should not have sung that. <laughs> or something along, if Jesus is the reason why, you still got to do things well and I get all that. You won't see me slack off on that hopefully. But the idea is that that's not what I came for. My primary get when coming to faith was not something I could just possess internally, but that it's to be more like him. A growing esteem for Jesus Christ. Secondly, a discernible spirit of repentance. Do we say, I am sorry, I did this, will you please forgive me? A church must continue to believe that sin is its greatest problem, and the hindrance to our most needed relationship with our creator. Leaders can ask themselves, am I displaying the same humility that I want from my people, from my group, from my team? This is a great practice for you parents. This is illustrative of what I'm talking about. But if you've never gone to your young children and asked for their forgiveness because you've overreacted or you 
you shouted at them in a way and you're just, you just lost your cool or something like that, or you misread a situation, you blame them for something. If you've never gone back to them and said, mom or dad, we, we really blew it. You know, mom blew it, dad blew it. Will you forgive me? We get it wrong too. You see that it translates the same as what we're talking about. Leadership in the church needs to be able to say, just because I've been put in a position doesn't mean I've got it all figured out. Just because we lead groups of people which can quickly play with our minds doesn't mean we belong there. Doesn't mean we deserve it. And so do we display the same humility that we want to see in our people? Do we want our people to come and confess their sins? To be pliable, to be workable? How much are we demonstrating that? And for the church... Do you see others as needing the same forgiveness that you've already found? As opposed to, what's for their problem? Why do they do this? How come they never get it right? When we have a, a gospel-centered approach in our heart, we say, I've been there. I, I daily need the restoration that Jesus can offer me. I can't, I can't just be so frustrated with them. I have to lead them out of that with patience, kindness, and grace. Also, we could say that a mark of a gospel-centered church is a dogged devotion to the word of God. Not news to you that have been coming to faith forever that we hold in high esteem the word of God. Why? Because Hebrews 4.12 says that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is effective. It is current. It is relevant. It is powerful. It's more than just our daily, if that, dose of positive thinking. It's where we find life. Let's move to the last indicator. I'm sorry, this second to the last. You almost thought you were out. I'm still making pretty decent time. But pray for my second service because I haven't, I've lost some endurance. We've only been doing one service for about two years, so I don't know how to do two in a row. All right. The next indicator is an interest in theology and doctrine. Now we're getting boring. Theology simply means, though, the study, the knowledge, the study of God. We are all theologians. We are studying something about God. The question is, are we studying rightly about him? Are the, the things that we're forming, our opinions of who God is, remember you've heard us say over and over again, it's not just the God who you want to make, the Santa Claus God, it's really the God who exists and his word confirms that for us. That as we study who he is from his word and we grow in our, in our interest in doctrine, it's not just for the Bible geeks. Some of you guys geek out on some of the strangest things and I hear about it. Now I'm starting to get certain emails about, hey, go down this rabbit hole and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm not into all of that. I'm into a lot of things, but not all of that. But you know what I am? I'm glad that some people are. I'm glad that somewhere around the world, someone's wrestling with some aspect of the Bible that maybe it hasn't been a personal interest of mine or hasn't drawn me down that path. But I'm glad people are freaking out about the words that are found on the pages of Scripture and digging deeper into its meaning. And I think that's how we round each other out. And so what would be a great indicator of a gospel-centered church is that people are chasing their passion in the Word of God and understanding what it is that God has for them and why it has specific meaning to them in their context. It's important because Romans 12, 2 reminds us not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need the words of God to inform us, to transform us. 
Lastly, an indication for us would be an evident love for God and neighbor. I can attest already that this has been a huge piece of our ministry here at Faith. As as one of your pastors throughout the years, I have always been blown away by how quickly this church responds to acts of love. Things like the, the fire at the campground or events like Night to Shine coming and everything, like the heartbeat of faith is, tell me what the need is, how can I fill it? And so I'm confident that others would look in and say it's evident that they have a love for God and for their neighbor. But we cannot, as we started off saying, we cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot ever think we've got this down to a science. This is what John warns in his first letter. He says, First John 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Since no one's laid eyes on God, they will see him through you. That little phrase blows me away. I wish we had time for it. That his love is perfected in us or matured or brought to completion. He doesn't need our help, but his plan includes you. He says, I'm not done until it goes through you. Think about that. Let that haunt you a little bit. God's spirit will always manifest itself in visible love. And his spirit moves in the true church through acts of love. That's how we demonstrate we are in love with him. We have important questions to ask ourselves. The leadership will strive towards gospel-centered direction. Everything that we can do to make the gospel prevalent in our teaching, in our conduct, and the things that we send home, that the gospel is a take-home gospel. That it isn't a leave it there on Sunday morning. The gospel follows us home like that little puppy dog just kind of nipping at your heel and always, where? how do I, you know, because I'm following. I'm not done with you yet. That's what we want is a take-home gospel. We're going to do that through the lives and the direction of our small groups. We're going to do that through our ministries. We're going to be all about that. That's what the leadership is promising and committing to doing. As a church, Will you also join towards striving towards a gospel-centered application? That even the things that we're not breaking down or making, you're wrestling with, what am I supposed to do with that? How does Jesus show up in that? How does he even make this possible when I thought it was impossible? Will you be willing to apply that which you're being fed, is the question, so that all of these other things are apparent in the life of this church as this ministry continues to move well into its future? Let's not be observers only. If, if anybody were to say to me, it sounds like you're doing great things at your church and I know that you come to our church, that's a bad sign. It's what are we doing with our church? This is us. We are involved in all of this because we are following the same spirit. We are surrendered to the same gospel. So let's make church weird again, I guess. Let's push the boundaries a little bit of a power that we want to see God doing in our midst, believing him, trusting and, and staying within the guardrails of good gospel doctrine, but releasing him to live in our culture, to make us a church known for these things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for all that you do in our midst. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the basic commission that you've given to us. So, Lord, help us to live by it, adhere to it, help us to retain it. Lord, we need to surrender.
so much of our lives. And so I pray you give us the grace, continual grace to do so. Lord, we thank you for this time, trusting and believing that you have great things in store. In your name we pray, amen.